This is a public service announcement. The world's about to end. You have 45 minutes. Welcome to If the World Was Ending. You'd come over, right? I'm Jamie. I'm Molly. <laughs> it feels really weird to do it that way around. Does it? Yeah. But it's good to mix it up. Yeah, we need to give the audience something fresh, you know, something a bit new, crisp. <laughs> Just like this lovely October morning. <laughs> it's that, it's kind of Nordic, um, sunny with a, with a bit of chill. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but chill. <laughs> Speaking of this crisp morning, <laughs> being in October. Yeah. October, mm-hmm. as we know, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It is indeed. Um, and so it's a great time for people to show their support for anyone who's been affected by breast cancer, but also to to talk about these things. Yeah. Um, and really use it as a platform to like to spread information and awareness, so people can yeah catch these things exactly. Yeah, and we're we're mentioning this because it's important, but also because our guest today will be talking about that. So also just a heads up that. This episode does deal with illness, and so mm-hmm. just be aware if that's something that might be difficult for you. Um, that comes up in this episode, um, but we're really grateful to to our guests for sharing lots of interesting information with us about um, cancer, breast cancer. So open about yeah. their experiences mm. and um, kind of really factual, but also very emotive. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and it's it's interesting because I had never really thought about this, but I actually quite recently went and had a check, had a mammogram and an ultrasound mm-hmm. because I was slightly worried and it was all completely fine, but it was definitely quite an intimidating situation, sort of walking in, you're getting this gown and you're sort of on your own and um, you just don't know what's going to be said to you in that moment yeah. it's yeah it's it's quite intimidating but I'm obviously really glad I did it to kind of clear up any concerns and make sure everything was okay so I'd strongly recommend that anyone with breasts does that 100 percent it's best thing to do mm-hmm. um better than sitting and worrying on webmd or whatever exactly. just, <laughs> just spiraling anything is better than webmd <laughs> which I'm definitely guilty of um but I guess with that should we should we get them on let's do it Um, So today's guest is Liz O'Reardon. She's a consultant breast surgeon who was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer in July 2015. She now formally writes and talks about her experiences and has her own podcast, Don't Ignore the Elephant. And for the purposes of this podcast, Liz's world is ending while she's in the operating theatre conducting breast surgery. Let's get her on. Let's go. Hi, Liz. Hiya. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I can't wait to chat. <laughs> no, I've got to say before we jump in, um, me and Molly were looking at your website earlier and we were admiring your glasses. Obsessed they are with them. Amazing. <laughs> glasses wearer. Yeah. I've got to say, yes. um, you, you must get a lot of compliments on them. I do. They cost a lot of money, um, but I bought them with the advance to my breast cancer book and I thought, sod it. And I get so many compliments on them. So it's definitely worth the money. They're three, they are 3D printed titanium mesh. Oh, oh. wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> glasses gold. Some of those. <laughs> yeah, so... see you later, Specsavers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Um, Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so, so for your setup for the end of the world, um, you're probably in the operating theatre. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think it does. Yes. Yeah. 
So I suppose the way that we envision this all happening is that you get a sort of notification on your phone um, or maybe everyone's phones kind of ping at the same time that says the world is about to end in 45 minutes. And I don't know whether you'd have your phone with you in the operating theatre. I was theater. just thinking that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it would be in my bag. I'd be okay. scrubbed, assuming I'm still operating. Yeah. So I, if it happened when I was working, my phone would be in my bag because they're all scrubbed, presumably in the middle of an operation. So you'd hear a load of pinging. But you wouldn't be able to go to your phone. But then our bleeps might go off as well. And is that the same for everyone in the operating theatre? Like the so, junior doctors? No. So everyone who scrubbed around the table would would not have their phones on them. Or if they're on call, the phones might be in their back pocket. But because you're scrubbed, you can't get to them. So often a nurse will reach in and thump, rummage around in your back pocket to get your phone out to see who's calling. Ah. And they'll hold up to your ear to speak. But you, if you're <laughs> operating, you can't actually touch it because you're sterile whereas people who aren't operating can get to their phones right right so I suppose we're imagining that that there are a number of people who are able to have a look mm-hmm. and this message yeah. gets out so you're you're made aware and I suppose the the first question is what's your how do you feel how, how are you thinking in that moment I guess I've got two thoughts one is oh my god we're inside a patient or I'm <laughs> removing a breast cancer and there's a patient to sleep on the table what about them and then how do I contact everybody? What's going to happen? Am I going to die in this operating room? Mm. Do you leave the patient? Do you go? That would be the dilemma going through my head. What would what would you I do? Think I'd, I'd, have, I'd have to stay with the patient. You'd, I, you'd, yeah. you'd finish the operation as quickly as you could. Um, get everybody out. To, it's like that episode of Grey's Anatomy when Christina had a hand on a bomb. Um, you, get everybody, you get everybody out who didn't need to be there and you try and finish the operation so that patient wasn't left because they're anaesthetized. This whole situation does sound very Grey's Anatomy. Very Grey's. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> we'll keep a lookout for that. They're, they're on season like 20 at the moment. I think so. Gosh, I stopped watching my season three. Um, and I guess there's no point in trying to call because everybody's trying to call at the moment. It's a bit like when 9-11 went down. Everyone was yeah. on the phones at the same time. Mm-hmm. And just, I'm probably remembering what was the last thing I said to my husband. And did I tell him I loved him or did I, was I cross with him for not putting the bins out? You know, you'd think about... <laughs> What was the last thing you said to the people you loved? Because you're yeah. not going to get the chance to tell them. It's interesting about the the, the patient, because I suppose there's, there's some part of me that thinks like they've almost got it quite good in that situation. They don't have to have experience the panic or the fear or anything. Like they're sort of out, right? Mm. Um, and I guess, do you would, you would some people have a discussion with the anaesthetist and say, well, let's just leave them yeah. anaesthetized. They don't wake up and we'll go. And I, I, I don't think I could do that. No. Fair enough. I'd want them, it, to me, it would almost be like killing them by not giving them a chance to wake up and tell, say their last words to someone who's actually never going to pass them on because they're all going to die. It's really interesting. Mm. I'd love to know what your listeners think if they were in my shoes. Would you leave the patient? Yeah. Or would you stay with them? And I guess as as a surgeon, as a doctor, you kind of, I think it's almost embedded in a lot of people that that is your, your duty that uh, do no harm perform, mm. exactly yeah mm. and perform that and my my responsibility would be for the team of people because as a consultant I'm kind of the boss of in the room and it's making sure they they can all get out and do what they need to but I can't do you just I don't know do you close the room and then try and get to the phone to send a text message to somebody it's really hard it's really hard I suppose I mean we can maybe imagine that that let's let's go ahead and imagine that you kind of like you say stitch the patient up and yeah. um, managed to wake them up. What would you What would you do next? Would you try and sort of 
encourage them to to make a call because I suppose they wouldn't really be able to move very but easily. No, because but you see, this is the thing I think about. It. it takes you quite a while to come round from an anaesthetic. Yes. It can take a good 30, 40 minutes to come round. And often for some people, it's a couple of hours until they start remembering things. So actually, no. we may just make the decision to close the wound, keep them anaesthetized and then go... But I, I want to make that decision with the other anaesthetists in the room. So as a team yeah. of consultants, we all agree we're going to make this decision for them. That's the thing. Like if that decision was completely... You, you couldn't do it. I couldn't do it by myself. No. Luckily, I wouldn't have to. But um, yeah, it's really hard. I guess now I'm worrying, how is the world going to end? Is it going to be painful? Is it going to be quick? We we, we think quite quick. In our imagining, yeah. we're thinking quick. quick. It's, it's a meteor. Okay. Yeah, there's kind of right. that instant, um, instant. So then, I've thought I'm in an operating theater. I have an anaesthetist. We've got access to drugs. Uh. Do we just <laughs> take a sedative or something just to calm down? Thinking, let's just. No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but it is interesting when you are in a room with access to a lot of things that could potentially help make it better. I think because if it happened today and I'd be home alone, I would want. I wouldn't want to die alone. I'd mm. want to try and find someone to hug them mm-hmm. just to get that comfort when it was coming to an end. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, the phone is fine, but it's all very superficial. I'd want someone just to hold my, or, me, or be able to hold someone else's hand and say, yeah. yeah, we're going through this together. And and speaking of comfort, um, I, I read, I saw on your Instagram, you have um, what you call a, a, a jar of joy. Yes. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So when I had chemotherapy, um, it had melted my breast cancer away and I had a mastectomy afterwards. And I got the results on the 23rd of December. And sadly, I had a sneaky kind of a cancer, which actually hadn't gone away. It was still there. And the cancer spread to my lymph nodes. And I thought, what's the point in celebrating Christmas? I don't see the point in New Year. There's no point in carrying on. The chemo hasn't worked. I'm going to die. And my mum let me wallow for a couple of days. And it was like, (laughs) right, you've got to you've got to pull yourself together. And I, it's really hard when you're faced with such a really bad news. And as a doctor, I know the potential of all the news I had. I thought, right, mm. I've kind of heard people doing gratitude journals and write down three things every day that you're thankful for and mindfulness. And to me, I can't be mindful in 10 minutes. It, it happens <laughs> when it happens. But I thought, yeah. what if I, I just started writing down things that happen that make me smile, regardless of when, it doesn't have to be every day. And I'll remember that good stuff does happen when you're dealing with chemo and recurrence and surgery. So I thought, right, I'm going to do this. And my blooming husband put the first card in. He'd put on a pair of trousers he hadn't worn in years and found a fiver in the back pocket. No, I wanted to be the first one. We just got a Cocker Spaniel puppy and they used to to stay in the kitchen with our chocolate lab. And he said, no, let's let the dogs come through and sit on the sofa. Oh, that was mine. And it may just be. I heard the birds sing or we went to the cinema or I made the perfect scone. Just really simple little things. But seeing Mm -hmm. that build up, it's a really Mm -hmm. visual reminder that there is good stuff happening, even in your darkest days. Absolutely. Absolutely. That kind of it's tangible. It's in front of you. you Yeah. And it it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't doesn't Mm. need to cost anything. It could be someone giving you a compliment about your glasses. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I'm kind of the, the same as you in terms of like a gratitude journal or mindfulness. Like I find it really hard to just sort of like click my fingers and I'm in in a in a I, I don't know gratitude frame of mind. Like I think it will hit me at different times. Like like you said, and sometimes it can be something quite dramatic that will spark it. It can be something really tiny. 
Um, and I think it's hard work to have the pressure of writing in a diary every day. Yeah. Or not finding three things. And if you don't, then you feel you've let yourself down. So this thing that's meant to bring you joy is suddenly a, a chain around your neck. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking. I think I've always kind of had that experience, but not, but it's not that I don't want to remember the joyful moments or think about them. It's just, they don't, I can't sort of force it to, to happen in that, in a specific time. So yeah, that's, um, I like a joy jar. Yeah, I might start a joy jar. <laughs> I love that. It's good. I've had I've had kids in schools doing them, and people in offices, and it's it's a really nice thing oh. to do. And then on New Year's Eve, I kind of pull them all out and see what the year was like, and it's like your own oh. reminder. God, we've done so yeah. much this year. Yeah. And I, I guess just talking about like being with other people. Um, again, I, I saw on your Instagram you got loads of amazing resources on there, but mm. you talked about um palliative care and like yeah kind of going through that process yourself realizing what that actually meant and kind of experiencing that is actually giving someone uh, a beautiful death right yeah so would that affect how you interact with other people around you in that moment when you get the text well I it's I don't think so because Palliative care is all about supporting people when they have symptoms and, mm. and that generally tends towards the end of life. So someone is going to die when we're all going to die. Mm. You know it's going to happen. The body is slowly starting to fade and you can give them a variety of drugs and fluids just to help ease that. So it's hopefully peaceful. But when the world is ending, there's no guarantee of peace. Mm. <laughs> you don't know what it's going to be like. Is it going to be painful? I don't think I don't think there's, there's drugs as palliative care support that you can give in that time because you don't know what the symptoms are going to be. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think you could say, we're going to die. It's inevitable. Let's talk about this. Any yes. last things you want to say, stuff you want to get off your chest, that kind of, tell, if you know you're dying, you can then say whatever you want to say. True. And I don't think we do that a lot as healthcare professionals. It's quite scary to tell someone you're dying. It can feel like as a doctor, you failed. But if they don't know, they don't get the chance to say what they want their last food to be, not a warm hospital meal. And I want to tell my brother I've never mm -hmm. forgiven him and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So I think it would help me have honest conversations say, right, what are we going to do? We can't avoid this. It's happening. We've got half an hour. What should we do? Rather than trying to find a way out, which you can't. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually, because I think that as humans, generally, we're really bad at talking about death. Mm. and it's you know it's it's kind of the only inevitability that every single one of us shares and obviously yeah it's it not a particularly like fairly fairly spread out experience but it it's it's universal and yet we don't know how to talk about it very well and I would have when you hmm. when you think about all the planning that goes into bringing a baby into the world yeah the classes and the plans and the books and then compare that to dying yeah there's nothing, but it's, it is mm. the one inevitability. You get born and yeah. you die. You can't change that. And we don't, we don't talk about advanced care planning and people saying, do you want to be resuscitated? It, mm. And it should be normal conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like the biggest preparation around death is a will, right? It's material. Yeah. Well, so this is interesting. Quite a few cancer patients I know who are dying have had um, living wakes. Because oh, when yeah. someone dies, yeah. everyone comes to tell the relatives how amazing the dead person was, but the dead person doesn't get to hear it. I think, I, I want people to tell me I'm amazing whilst I'm still alive and whilst I still look good. I would it's definitely weird, But come and tell me how wonderful I am whilst I still look well. And then you don't need to bother coming to pay your respects to the funeral because you've done it now and I'm alive. Yeah. 
Yeah. Isn't it funny? Yeah, I've always got thought that about funerals. Like they are that I guess they're more for the family or the, or the loved ones, right? And they and they. But that be- person, that person yeah. never knew how much they were loved or what an impact they yeah. had on the world. Yeah. yeah. On the on the flip side of that as well, because I have yeah. a bit of um, kind of cancer patients or survivors who maybe haven't had such a good experience with other people around mm, them when mm. they've been diagnosed and it almost kind of they they work out who their friends are and maybe some people yeah. struggle to like support someone with cancer because it reminds mm. them of their own um mortality mm. it's very common mm. cancer is a really big subject another thing we don't talk about and yeah. many people just can't cope yeah mm. They're scared of what's going to happen to you. They're scared if they get it. And it is funny, almost everyone with cancer says this. There are people who you thought would be there for you. Mm. It's just too much or their life's going on. And people, so um, one of my best friends when I was at school knitted me um, a Wonder Woman outfit for a Barbie doll that she sent me through the post. People I haven't spoken to in years. It's the same with my mum, have just suddenly come out the woodwork and they're sending cards. And it's just, it's not who your real friends are, but the friends you need at that time. Yeah. 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 Liz, would you say you've got like a, a, a following of, of people who maybe find your work when they themselves are experiencing breast cancer or going through or, or supporting someone with breast cancer? Yeah, I think a lot of my followers have been touched by cancer and it is really weird. So I started blogging mm. to make my journey seem real because I was still in denial and that led to doctors and nurses and students saying thank you for explaining what breast cancer was like. And it led to me being able to help patients. And now it's like, am I the breast cancer surgeon for Instagram in a way? But there are quite a few of us out there now interacting and educating people. Um, But it can be really hard because you get desperate people reaching out, asking questions that they don't want to or feel they can't ask their own doctors. And it's really hard to not cross the line of being a personal doctor, but still giving advice. Mm -hmm. And there are days when I wish I could put cancer behind me and just be Liz yeah um but I've kind of made I don't make a living from it it's it kind of given me a new purpose now I've retired as a surgeon and it, it's a really weird place to be I almost switch off from the fact that I've had cancer myself and pretend to happen to somebody else yeah that's that's really interesting I, I think um so much of what you say I can kind of understand it so, so deeply but even kind of never having experienced that I've not had a family member that's experienced it but yet mm-hmm. kind of being able to see somebody's kind of story like that and because you're a surgeon yourself then you know I guess people would read that and really gain a sense of kind of authority from what you're saying as well yeah I've been on both sides of the table and I know what I didn't know yeah (laughs) I know what I I I know what I wish I'd known at the time just just trying to take some of the fear away yeah and, and be a voice of common sense who can hopefully explain things and I talk honestly about everything that's happened to me because again like sex and death there's so much we don't talk about and yeah. people need to hear it mm. and you mentioned before about um denial could you explain yes that? yeah so I I didn't find out I had cancer in the normal way most people have a symptom and they have a biopsy and then they get the results and then they have surgery and get the results and have chemo and get the results mm-hmm. my mammogram was normal um and I had an ultrasound scan of the lump that I'd noticed and I looked at the screen and I saw a cancer oh. and in that split second I knew I was young it was big I'd need chemo I'd need a mastectomy I had a good idea what my chance of being alive in 10 years was yeah and it was like um 
I couldn't cope. It was too much information. So I, I, my brain just kind of shut down. Like, this is happening to someone else. It cannot be real. I'm a breast surgeon. I can't have breast cancer. Yeah. And even now, I don't think I've had breast cancer twice. It's really weird. And I think it's yeah. because I've looked after young women who've died of breast cancer. I've seen all aspects of this disease. I'm trying to protect myself from what my future might hold. It's a bit deep and profound, but it's just... And I guess it's it's protecting me from all the people who ask me questions and who tell me their own stories. If I was still emotional as a patient, I couldn't cope. But mm. by going back into doctor mode, I can absorb their emotion and give advice back whilst protecting myself. Yeah, and I, I saw in your TED talk as well that you mentioned you changed the way where, when you were working in the hospital, you changed mm. the way you were delivering news to patients as well. Yeah. Certain trigger words yeah it's the thing is when you never hear what you're saying to patients back you think you're using the right words and as a doctor I learned to break bad news from listening to lots and lots of people and saying oh I like that that was awful and never say that and I thought I got a really good pattern that worked that bonded and then you realize as a patient when you hear the words you've got cancer it has a completely different meaning And I said, because I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly, I used to tell women with a small cancer that didn't need chemo, you know, it's good we caught it early and it's lucky it hasn't spread. And I'm trying to be really positive and I can kind of see their partner going, yes, that's great. But as a patient, no one's lucky to get cancer. No cancer is good to have any cancer. Mm. And it's just tiny little words can have the biggest impact. When people tell you, you know, you can be brave and be strong chemo is not fun I don't need to be brave I could be miserable and cry and say this is horrible um yeah yeah I've seen that sort of um discussion around a lot the terminology like even the kind of the idea of like survivor as if someone who survives breast cancer or cancer generally has kind of like beaten something that someone else yeah couldn't do as if it was their fault I I had a friend who who's I think that their mum passed away from cancer and and they sort of brought that to my attention I thought it was really interesting because it was like Right, so what did my mum not fight hard enough? Did my mum not yeah, do anything exactly. to, to kind of push through? I, yeah. It's really interesting. And and that language around cancer didn't bother me until I had cancer myself. And yeah. I think the fighting talk can be really empowering to a lot of patients because you fight to get through chemo, to get through surgery, to get through radiotherapy. You are trying to get through it to get your life at the other side. But saying you're survived can upset people who are dying as you said and it's when the media say they lost their battle it's because medical science lost curing the disease yeah it was out of your hands mm. but because it's such an emotive language it's great even oh they lost the battle where well, they were so brave and they fought really yeah. hard it's like no they didn't lose they weren't a failure they had cancer and we didn't have a treatment for it but I can't think of a sexy word to replace it so the media and the tabloids will use it. Yeah, and it also excludes a lot of kind of socioeconomic factors that that like we know are really present in healthcare and mm. generally health inequality, like race, class, mm. you know, yes. conditions, all of those kinds of things. And as if, you know, again, that people who are already kind of marginalised or racialized are like less deserving of, I don't know, of that kind yeah, of... Yeah, no. Exactly. And, and it makes it makes having cancer seem like a struggle and seem like a fight where most of the time it isn't. And it's just because we don't talk about it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think someone with metastatic cancer is the typical picture you see of a patient in a hospice bed in an advert in the cinema mm. where they look ill. And actually, 
half the people you see on the street could have stage four metastatic cancer and you wouldn't know and they're still walking and working and exercising you can be well and lead a very active life but our, our image in the media of someone with cancer is that ill sick bold frail gray-skinned yeah. person in a hospital bed yeah do you think and that's, that's not the reality do, do you think that's also a way for like us as a collective to like feel better about like what cancer is because we can be like well they lost their struggle but like if it was to happen to me or someone that I know I, I just win. fight harder yeah or I could win yeah I could win yeah, yeah. It's not a lottery. It's not like... No, and there are so many cancer patients, people with cancer are vulnerable, and there are lots of people promising cures and diets and this and that because we're desperate for hope. We know medical science can't cure it when it's spread, but if someone is promising you, give me £10,000 and I'll give you an infusion of this and it'll help, you're desperate. And I think it's really, really hard to accept that one in two of us are going to get cancer and some of us are going to die because of cancer. And not every cancer is the same. And you may compare cancer may be a very personal experience to you, but you may have something very, very different. Yeah. Mm. You can't compare like with like. No. That that stat you just said, I, we both just went like, what? Did you <laughs> say one in two people? Yeah, I've had it twice. So you're both fine. They say one in two people born over born since I think 1960 will get cancer in their lifetime. That's a staggering yeah. piece of data. I I didn't know that at all. That's, wow. And it, it's generally a disease of the elderly. As your cells replicate, they start to make more and more mistakes. The so cancers can happen. But we are seeing cancers in younger people. And I think that it's really interesting with Instagram. There's a very skewed notion that suddenly, say, breast cancer is really, really common in young women. And I think it's young women with breast cancer are posted on Instagram, whereas a lot of the women in their 60s, 70s, 80s aren't. So you don't see them. So they don't kind of exist in your waveband, wavelength. Yeah, and I feel like that's really yeah. t- taking me back a bit, but it's um, I suppose it's it's good to to be aware of it because I you know I, I guess I also understand that the sooner that you can kind of catch it, the better mm-hmm. your yeah. And it comes back to do you check your boobs and your balls every month, and do yeah. you look at your pee and your poo, and do you check your moles if you've been sunburned, and just being aware of your body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hands up, I never check my breasts. I did when someone famous died, but I never thought I would get breast cancer because I was a breast surgeon and I never regularly check my breasts. That's really interesting. Do, and do you, is that something that you kind of are keen to, to spread awareness of, of getting, of getting yeah. more regularly? I think mammograms don't work in younger women because their breasts are dense. So the only thing young women have to pick up breast cancer early is to self-examine their breasts. Oh. And you need to do it regularly so you know what's normal for you so you can pick up a change. Mm. Right. It's it's the only tool you have. Like like for young men, testicular cancer is really common in men in their twenties and thirties. But if you don't check your balls every month, mm. you may pick it up at a much later stage. Mm. And it is obviously Breast Cancer Awareness Month at the moment. Yes, it yeah. is. And so I, I guess like it must have been a very busy month for you, ladies. Yes, <laughs> that's good. I, I imagine as well. Like it's also a good opportunity. It's not just like celebrities died let's talk about it it's like a month to really push that that knowledge and awareness out to the the wider world yeah and it's it is common and I don't think we'll ever find a way to prevent it but if if people do have their mammograms if they do check their breasts and find something early it does mean they need less treatment what I want to do is try and raise awareness of the metastatic cancer community because they're often forgotten and it's the people who are who need money for more research 
the cures to help them stay alive longer. It's not just buying a pink bra in M&S and wearing pink and thinking you've done something good. Um, it's the same with a lot of cancer mums. People sell an awful lot of tat. Do you think, actually, where is the money for this going? Am I better off not buying a hat and giving 20 quid to prostate cancer? Mm. Liz, can you tell us, tell us a bit more about metastatic cancer? Because I, I don't think I know much about the difference. And, and Sure. So it gets very confusing. You hear stages and grades and levels. Basically, you have primary cancer, which means the cancer is contained within the organ and the lymph nodes around it. Mm-hmm. So for breast cancer, that's the breast and the lymph nodes in the armpit. For bowel cancer, it may be the bowel and the lymph nodes around the bowel and the tummy. That's primary cancer. Mm-hmm. And that is normally stage one, two, three, depending on how big the cancer is and how many lymph nodes are involved. Mm-hmm. Stage four or advanced or secondary or metastatic or recurrent cancer all mean, this, all mean the same thing. And that means that the cancer cells have moved beyond the original site. So they may have moved from the bowel and the breast and they've traveled through the blood and the lymph and they've set up home in the liver or the lung or the bones or the brain. It's a bit different for leukemias and lymphomas because they are blood cancers. But for cancers coming from solid parts of the body, it means that often you have we have treatments for breast cancer. We excise the cancer and we give most women a combination of chemo and or radiotherapy and or drugs to stop it coming back. But we know that we expect there to be cells floating in the bloodstream that are just fast asleep, waiting to find a friend. And for some people in the future, they wake up, they stop growing, they set up camps somewhere else. And that means that it's spread beyond the initial site and it can't be cured. So we then give treatments to try and remove the little deposits or to slow down the spread. It's interesting because it's reminding me of... um... A friend of mine who had who had that experience and passed away, and I was just thinking about that's very being quite emotional. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. But like, it, you know, everyone knows someone who's had it. But I just yeah. And I think it can be really hard if you've got metastatic cancer because for some people, say they have one, they have one bit in their lung. You can actually excise that bit of the lung. Yeah. And they're technically cancer free, but it can still come back in the future. So they look well. They don't have cancer at the moment, but they're still stage four. And a lot of friends and family find it hard to accept that how can someone with metastatic recurrent cancer still be working and exercising? You should be in a hospice bed. And it's really hard to realize that mm-hmm. cancer doesn't need to take over your life for the vast majority of it. And Liz, Liz you also have your, your own podcast, right? Yes. Don't ignore the elephant. Because everyone's got one. Why not? Of course. <laughs> of course. That's I, had to, I had to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, I did. So. <laughs> so I'm going to plug it because why not it's called don't ignore the elephant and it came off the back of lockdown where I spent most of my time talking about sex and death to variety of patient groups and cancer groups and I thought I want to be able to reach more people Mm -hmm. to help people I'm not doing it to make money I'm not doing it to get the latest celeb on a book tour coming through I want to talk about issues that I know are difficult with people who've either lived through them or who are experts in helping us cope Mm -hmm. Um, that's where it all came from. It's kind of me as a doctor trying to help more people. I was interested in kind of your, um, what did you call it? You had a, you had a term. Nutribollocks. Yeah, Nutribollocks. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah. And and does that come up quite a lot? I would imagine you get asked a lot about food. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's tricky as a, I think as a doctor, you don't get a lot of training in, in, variety of diets you know basic healthy sensible nutrition mm-hmm. and I had no idea that cancer patients wanted to know what they should be eating because I just assumed you eat what you're meant to eat I mean the World Health Organization says a healthy balanced diet 
rainbow of fruit and veg, mainly non-processed food that'll give you all the vitamins and minerals you need. Mm-hmm. But suddenly there are people out there desperate for something else that will help. Mm-hmm. this diet or that supplement and people asking can I take black pepper and ginseng or could I take turkey tail mushroom sticks I've never heard of these and why are you taking them <laughs> and again with the wellness apps and I think it's easier to spend 50 quid on a supplement and think you're going to be fine yeah than actually go and cook a stir fry with healthy fruit and veg mm. yeah and it is that privilege people have the money to spend on the apps and this and that lifestyle and that guilt shaming and it's I think it's really, really hard. How do you know someone is an expert? How do you know you can believe them? And when people are making money off the variety of things they're selling, it can be really, really hard. And often it's the one thing your doctors won't tell you. Well, if, it ha- if, if it, that was really true, then everybody would be telling you it because it's not a secret. Yeah. Like, hey, try this tea. It will reduce your anxiety. It's like, right if you now, have a yeah. tea that will reduce your anxiety, you probably don't have anxiety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, or the fact that you are having a hot drink and sitting and taking the time out to yes. drink it is calming you. It doesn't matter what's in the cup. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And when people are taking five or six things and they're saying, well, this cured my arthritis, we don't know which one it is. It's yeah. bad science. That's what I'm Just saying. take one thing. Yeah, and often people will also, you know, if you're really health conscious, you probably are eating quite well, you probably are exercising. Exactly. So is it just you're living a healthy lifestyle yeah, and not exactly. the ginseng that you're taking? Exactly. People are funny. And I, I've heard this term float around a lot, um, anti-carcinogen. Like, I, I've heard cranberries, for example, yeah. being an anti-carcinogen. Is that, is that legit? Is that kind of a, a fatty term that's being created? Or is it still, I still I haven't done the research on cranberries. It's hard to do anything <laughs> in my head. But I'd say, I don't think any food is going to stop anybody getting cancer. Yeah. It may have a higher level of vitamins and minerals because it's red. And if you're mainly eating beige food, then the cranberries may be actually good for you because you're getting stuff you're not getting in your diet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't comment on whether they can cure cancer or not or stop you getting cancer, but I think it's quite unlikely. And especially if you drink cranberry juice and smoke, that doesn't make sense. Right. If you drink cranberry juice with vodka, that doesn't make sense (laughs) because alcohol is a carcinogen. Tobacco is a carcinogen. So it's that, you know, if you're smoking and taking supplements, then just, you, you, you're throwing good money after bad in a way. Um, Liz, we're, we're, we're wondering about the, maybe it's time to do your summary. Or- yeah, I can do that. Okay. So your 45 minutes in 30 seconds <laughs> starts now. I think I feel a mixture of shock, terror, pain. My thoughts would be for the patient on the table and I want to make sure their wound was closed and they were looked after. I'd want to try and reach my husband and my mum and my dad and make sure that everyone in the room had the comfort and support that they needed. Um, Try and find someone I knew, a friendly face to sit and be with and just remember what my life would be like. I'd be sad. I'd be sad that I wasn't with my dog and I couldn't get to my husband and the people who love me, but I'm not the only one. So that, <gasps> that was hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we, so we veered <laughs> off a lot in that interview anyway. Yeah. We didn't so a little, sorry. Um Liz, thank you so much yeah. for coming on the podcast. It was both fascinating and and I learned emotional, so much speaking to you yeah. emotional and yeah. <laughs> it was great to be asked some really different questions and really make me think. So thank you both oh, so much. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Liz. Take care. Bye. 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 Oh, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, ev- everyone is, I don't think there's anyone who's not affected by cancer in some way. So it always makes you think of someone, someone you, you know, know, someone you love. <gasps> wow. I just said that at the same time. But yeah. So yes, it's, it's always going to be an emotional conversation, but really, really important. Um, I'm so glad we got to speak to Liz about that. Yeah, and I, I don't think it struck me just how important it was until we started talking about it more and really, like, how we don't talk about it enough yeah. as we were talking about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I feel like people don't kind of... We, we all, like you said, everyone knows somebody. It's, it's kind of part of our vocabulary, but only, like, the sort of surface level of it, like the word it's cancer. Me. Yeah. It's the never me kind of mindset. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're very good at that. <laughs> um, but... Yes. Good time to mention. Yeah. It's always important to, to check yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, re- as Liz was saying, regular checks, mm-hmm. very important. Yeah. And so just on that as well, we will be putting more information um, both in the podcast description mm-hmm. and on our socials. Yeah. Um, and um, so if you want to find our socials, we're... At if the world was ending underscore podcast. You can also email us. You can email us uh, if the world was ending podcast at gmail.com. That's great. And like, follow, subscribe. All these things. Give us five stars. We might have mentioned once or twice. (laughs) We love that. And we'll see you next time. See you next week. If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? Right?